One of my favorite stories that I've told multiple times, I was reflecting on in a group I was a part of a little over a week ago, but it, it comes from the documentary that was shot 50 years after D-Day, after the, the troops stormed the beach of Normandy. So 50 years, this was the early 90s, a documentary was made about this, talking to people who were, who were there in that battle. And they were talking to a lot, of the, a lot of the men who were coming in on the boats as they stormed the, the beaches of Normandy. And these men were being asked questions about what they, that experience was like. And what they said was when they, they heard what was around them and they opened their eyes and they saw what was around them, they thought to themselves, there's no way we're going to win this battle. Yet in the same documentary, they were... Uh, interviewing pilots who were flying over the beach that day, asking them some of the same questions. And those men said, when we looked down from our planes and we saw what was below us, we thought to ourselves, there's no way we're going to lose this. Now, that day, thousands and thousands of lives were lost. But it's interesting hearing them reflect back on that, that those who were down on the ground in the fight and thought there was no way we're going to win... But those who were above, able to see the bigger picture, thought to themselves, there no, there's no way we're going to lose. And I love the story because sometimes what, that's what it means to be the church. If we come in a place like this and what we need is people who can sing the songs and speak the words that can remind us of the bigger picture. Because it's so easy for us to be pressed down in just a grind of life. I was uh, honored to be a part of a baptism a few, a few days ago and as I was... A part of that, I was reflecting that day on 1 Peter chapter 3, which is a place where it does talk about how in the waters of baptism, it's not a place that cleanses your body from dirt. It's a place that cleanses your conscience. So baptism gives you a clean conscience so you don't have to live with doubts and a lot of uncertainty. You can, you can wrestle with those. But when it comes to being in the presence of God, you, you can have a clear conscience to know that you and God are committed and are together forever. And as I was reflecting on that, I came to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, which talks about the sacrifice. As we enter into a holy week, and we reflect a lot this week, at least for me, when it comes to like this week leading up to Easter, the pace of my life kind of slows down. I'm drawn into deeper reflection. But in 1 Peter 3, 18, it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And just looking at that, for Christ also suffered once for sins, once and for all, is a phrase that shows up quite a bit in the book of Hebrews and throughout the New Testament, that Jesus doesn't have to get on a cross every single day so that your sins and our sins can be forgiven. Once and for all, Jesus conquered death. And it says the righteous for the unrighteous, the sinless died for the sinners to bring you to God. That what, God, what Jesus was doing was creating access where there's nothing that separates people from God anymore. His blood provides this access, this commitment, this covenant. And Jesus endured physical pain, was put to death in the body so that people could be made alive. Isn't that good? A few years ago, there was a show that came out, ran for multiple seasons, called 24. 24 was based on one of the baddest dudes ever, Jack Bauer. And the show 24, I think there were 24 episodes, and every episode would take you through an hour. And in those 24 episodes that would take you through 24 hours of one day, there's always something that's happening in the world, and Jack Bauer's part of a team, and they're forming strategies, and they're going in the subways, and one episode, they're in New York, and the episode, next episode, they take a quick plane to Paris, and, and they're going all over the place in 24 hours. And one of the things I always thought to myself, reflecting, is like, man, these people never pause to eat 
or to get Gatorade or anything. Like if I'm ever a part of a strategy to save the world at some point, I'm going to be like, hold up, man. I need some Chick-fil-A before I can move on. I need some Gatorade to quench some thirst. Somebody make me a sandwich or some cheese with squirt, some squirt cheese and crackers or something, all right? I want to take you through just 24, uh, 24 hours leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus today. Because in one day, Jesus accomplishes something that transformed all days. In such a really small period of time, in just a few hours, Jesus does something that was so cosmic and so big, it transformed all of eternity. Let me just give you something to reflect on just for a moment, because part of what we do today is going to take us to a garden. Will you go to this next? I have just three statements I want to, I want to give you today. And one is this, Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden. And Jesus goes to the garden to strengthen an obedient heart. Now, I worded, that phrase, worded it that way very specifically and intentionally. That Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane the night before he's betrayed, the, the night he is betrayed, the night before he is crucified. And he goes there surrendering to the will of God. But it's in a garden where things go wrong and in a garden where things are made right. If you go to the next statement, Adam and Eve hide behind a tree to cover their shame. And it's Jesus who hangs on a tree to conquer sin and shame. And then one more statement that I reflect on, I have reflected on some of the next, the last week. If you go to that next slide. Adam and Eve began in paradise and were placed outside the gates. And it's Jesus who dies and is crucified outside of the gates so that people could be ushered into paradise. So as I reflect upon the last week that leads up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a lot of my reflection is everything that went wrong in the garden, Jesus is attempting to reverse that curse. And what Jesus did to reverse the garden through the death, burial, and resurrection is what Jesus still can do with our pain and our disobedience and everything in our own lives and in the world that is in need of restoration today. Where things go wrong, Jesus wants to make them right. Where things have been broken, Jesus may not be able to put it back together just like it was, but he wants to be able to restore it in some kind of way that brings God glory and good to the world. He was committed to a cause, committed to the heart of God, committed to the mission of God. So today, if you're taking notes, I want you to specifically think through settings, sights, sounds, and emotions of the 24 hours leading up to the crucifixion. So to do this, I, I said, okay, in my own life over the last two weeks, what has been the most chaotic 24 hours of my life that has taken me to more settings and has created more emotions in me than any other day? Last weekend, I was in Kansas City where I, I did a staff retreat at a church. I spoke at a church. And last Sunday night, last, uh, late Sunday, I had a friend in Kansas City who took me to eat some Kansas City barbecue. Now, I almost got in a fight in this place. Uh, my nonviolent tendencies began to break down because there were people there who found out I was from Memphis and they started trying to, to tell me that Kansas City has better barbecue than Memphis. I almost came unglued. The, the, the barbecue was fine. If you put barbecue from any place, any state in front of me, I will eat it, but it's, it's no Memphis barbecue. Then I went to a prayer room in Kansas City for a couple of hours, which the pace of that prayer room, the setting of the prayer room was a little different than the restaurant I had just been in for over an hour. My emotions were a little different than when I was in the barbecue shop. 
I went to sleep in a hotel. I had a 6 a.m. flight. Occasionally, I book 6 a.m. flights because I think it's a good idea until I have to set my alarm for 4.30 in the morning and realize this isn't a good idea. I woke up at 1.45 in the morning. There was a notification on my phone that my plane at 6 a.m., my flight, had been canceled, not just postponed, canceled. I began to panic at 1.45 a.m. because I wanted to get home and be with my family. I had a, a lunch appointment with a couple of buddies who were in from out of town here in Memphis. And I thought it would be really cool to be there. Thankfully, American Airlines, without even telling me, put me on another flight. That's great. I left at 6.15. Now, I didn't have to connect through Dallas-Fort Worth. I had to go to Chicago. Sometimes to get to Memphis, you got to go backwards to get, go forward. I was on a flight. I had an aisle seat. The two people on my right in the middle and by the window and one person across the aisle. When it came to handing out drinks, they did not ask for sodas or for juices or even for alcohol. They just wanted a cup of ice. So for the entire flight, there were three people by me who had open mouth, loud ice crunching going on the entire flight. It's all right. I don't think they're going to hell. I'm just not sure they're going to go to heaven. Okay. <laughs> So I landed in Memphis. I'm tired because I never went back to sleep after 1.45. So I got in my car. I made it to a lunch appointment with a couple of buddies who were ministers at the Pleasant Valley Church in Little Rock. So we hung out, eating some Central Barbecue for two hours. After that, I was able to connect with my family. My boys were out of school. Casey came home from work. We were able to hang out, tell stories, catch up. And then to top it all off of this 24-hour period that took me from Kansas City to Chicago to Memphis to two different kinds of barbecue, I had an elders meeting Monday night that was full of joy and excitement and smiles on faces and high fives and, and Fortnite dance competitions. It was, it was a thrill. Now, I'm sure you can think of a time in your life. Now, maybe the last 24 hours of your life were spent on a couch and there wasn't much going on, but I bet you can think of a day that took you to multiple different places, and a lot of times, based on the setting of where you are and what puts you there, emotions come with it. Times when you're excited and full of joy, times when you're down, times when you're stressed and you're driving through traffic to get them from one setting to another. So when it comes to the 24 hours leading up to the crucifixion, there are a lot of different settings and a lot of different emotions. So let me just take you through the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 14. Here are a few of them. So I want to begin just talking about a table at the Passover. And, and it's important, I think, we keep all that together because uh, it's not just the Passover where it's some... It's like a religious activity where people are sitting in a place but looking up at the front while people are on a stage or on a platform. It's at a table. And at a table is where there was a Passover. There's fellowship. There's food. This is the kind of meal where most restaurants we go to today, they're trying to get you in and out. As soon as you sit down, they're taking your drink order. They're trying to take your food order. They're moving you in and out. Occasionally, maybe you go to the restaurant where there's a slower pace. The Passover, you will be there for a long time. So Jesus is at the Passover. Here's how it begins. Mark chapter 14, verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. Now, if you read before that, it shows you how this whole thing was set up. There was a specific place, a specific location Jesus sent them to. Preparations were made. Boom, Jesus is there with the 12. The next verse is this. While they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, 
one who is eating with me. Now, I think it's safe to assume before this moment, a lot of other words had been shared. Because people talk a lot at the Passover meal. Someone is presiding over it. There's conversations that are happening. But the first recorded words by, the, by Mark when it comes to writing his gospel isn't about anything happening in the Passover or things that they would, would pray or reflect on in the Passover. The first thing he reads or he tells you about is Jesus saying, Hey, somebody here is going to betray me. Now, he continues a couple of verses later in verse 20, where it says, It is one of the twelve, Jesus replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Can you imagine being in this moment for Jesus? Now, I bet almost all of you have experienced betrayal in some, some form in your life before. And a lot of times when we experience betrayal, it's a moment happens, something happens, and then you know you've been betrayed. Maybe there's times in your life when you saw betrayal coming and it played out like you saw it coming. And for Jesus in this moment, he's saying, hey, something's about to happen. Like I'm about to be betrayed. He sees it happening, speaks it, knowing he had invested in every single one of these relationships over three years These men had witnessed Jesus perform miracles, teach, drive out demons. And at the Passover, if you've ever been a part of a Passover meal, there is a focus on bitterness at some point in that Passover, of how bitter it was back in Egypt, of how times in the wilderness where there was disobedience and rebellion against God. And now, as they are going to a Passover meal, where there are times in the Passover meal that are focused on bitterness, Jesus speaks this moment that's about to happen where there's going to be betrayal, there's going to be a taste of bitterness. But even then, Jesus, knowing he's in the presence of not just one, but as we read, others who are going to betray him too, he's still, in verse 22, it's like Jesus is in the moment. And it says this, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a meal that would have taken a few hours. We just get a few moments of what happened and what was spoken in that meal. And how Jesus is declaring in front of those men that the celebration that all of them had been a part of every year since birth was now going to come to a fulfillment in Jesus. Now, after being at at a table at the Passover, they are on a path. So they're on a path that's going from a house where they had the Passover to a garden of Gethsemane. We're talking probably a mile, two miles of a journey at night. And in Mark 14, 26, and I went ahead and included this on the path, even though it probably happened or started in the room at the table, they sing a song. Mark and Matthew tell you that after the Passover meal was over, they sing a hymn. How many of you ever thought back or thought, you sat back and thought, you would really like to know what that song was before. Like, you want to know what it is. What did they sing? Now, tradition probably tells, or tradition does tell us, that in the Passover meal, they would have sung some of the halal songs, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, one of those psalms. And some believe that Psalm 118 would have been the song that they would have ended this Passover meal with. And I'm not going to read all of Psalm 118. Let me just read a few 
verses in Psalm 118 too. You can go home and read the whole thing later. But if this was the song or psalm that they read, think about how it fits the moment they were in. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me. So I I will have no fear. What can humans do to me? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. That's Psalm 118. And this is the Lord's doing and it's wonderful to me. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. The Lord is shining upon us. So they sing a song as they transition from the Passover meal to a garden. A garden where Jesus prayed multiple times. This is a place of solitude for Jesus. But on the way, you read of another conversation where Jesus comes back to something. He had just said in verse 27, what it says is, And Jesus said to them, You will all become deserters. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So here, at the Passover meal, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And now on the way to Gethsemane, Jesus says, all of you are going to betray me. Like all of you are going to be deserters. But then Jesus offers a word of hope. Which I think days, weeks, and years later would have provided so much comfort to them. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though all have become deserters, I won't. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this day, this very night, before the rooster crows crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter was like so angry. He's like fighting back, pushing back against Jesus. Even though I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all of them said the same thing. And then they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to pause right there just with Gethsemane for a moment. Because Gethsemane means olive press. And I remember I preached on this a few years ago because this is a reality in my life over the last five or six years that I've really focused on trying to get to know some of the culture better. And Gethsemane Mount of Olives, and being in there, there's these olive trees. There's one olive tree today in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane that they believe is 2,500 years old. And they don't set up a plaque next to it saying Jesus sat under this tree, but to think that there is a tree that Jesus would have been close to, it, it does something to you. And for all of the olives that were taken from the Mount of Olives, what happened is that they would go on this huge stone, piece of this huge stone, and then another stone was placed on top of that one, which would have grinded and pressed and crushed the olives so that oil could flow in the jars, and then they would go and they would sell it. That is how olive oil is made. And just the thought of Jesus praying in a place where there were these stones that were being crushed, stones that were crushing olives, making oil, knowing that his own life, in his own life, he was about to do the exact same thing, that he was going to be pressed, squeezed, crushed. But for Jesus, what this was going to mean is that there was going to be an anointing oil that, that, that would now flow from his act of obedience and his death and his resurrection that would flow and onto us. So he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the places where olives were picked and olives were pressed. And what we read in this, this, this one little section, I want to focus on just for a moment. In verse 33, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. 
And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. This is a moment where you probably read more about specific emotions Jesus was feeling more than any other story you read of Jesus. He's distressed, agitated, throwing himself on the ground. The prayer he is crying out to God is for this cup to be taken from him. Like if there's any other way to bring salvation to this world other than Jesus having to be crucified on a cross, he's pleading with God, let's set that into motion, but, but not my will, your will be done. And for a long time, I thought the reason Jesus took Peter, James, and John was for companionship. And, and that argument can still be out there. Maybe that's why he brought them with them. But, but maybe what he is doing is trying to posture Peter, James, and John in a place of prayer so that they can take their commitment to God seriously too. Do you ever feel like God does that to you? Like wants to draw you into a posture or in a, into a position to prayerfully reflect on your commitment to God and what it means for your life? That Jesus is trying to prepare his own apostles, his own disciples for a time when he's going to be betrayed. And things are about to happen that he had tried to prepare them for, but in their hearts they weren't prepared for. And he's telling them to keep awake while he goes over and he prays. Jesus comes up and steps up from that prayer time. And throughout the rest of the next few hours up until the death, It is like Jesus comes out of that place of prayer with this peace and this calmness where he's not agitated anymore. So when Jesus is betrayed, the conversation and how he even talks to those who are betraying him is like a person who is centered in the heart of God, confident And what he is doing, surrendering to the will of God. Throughout the rest of chapter 14, 15, when Jesus is standing on trial multiple times, the peace that is on him is so strong that I believe comes from Jesus' willingness to go to this garden and surrender to God in prayer. And what you read in verse 48, and Jesus said to them, as these people were coming to carry him away and to arrest him, if you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as though I were a, a bandit, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me, but let the scripture be fulfilled. All of his disciples deserted him and they fled. And then you get these two funny verses that we're not really sure what to do with in verse 51. Where a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. And they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran off naked. You got a streaker in the story of Jesus being (laughs) arrested and taken away. Many believe this was Mark. As a young man following the disciples, there in the moment, and he writes this about himself. But then you come to the next scene, and I'm not going to read all of this, but the rest of chapter 14 and 15. Jesus is taken to the home of a high priest, and then he's taken from there to a place with Pilate. We're talking about hours and hours that go by, where you get a few details. But a lot of time, we're not, we're not sure exactly what happened. And some believe, and we were over in this part of Israel a few months ago, some believe Jesus was placed down in a dungeon at the high priest, because that's where prisoners were placed when Prisoners were held overnight when they were on trial. And as Jesus went from a high priest's house to Pilate's house, we're talking about a mile walk where Jesus had to walk a road as a prisoner, chained, being drugged on these streets. And as I've asked you just to think about settings and emotions and sights and sounds, 
We're not even to the point where you're going to hear nails or, or hammers hitting nails going into his hands. If you read those and just think about emotion, sights, and sounds, what you have are people screaming and crying out to crucify him. You have Jews who want Jesus dead. But Jews couldn't like, take it upon themselves to to place a death penalty on someone. They needed the Romans to do that. So now Jews are working with Romans and now Jews are mocking Jesus for claiming to be the Christ. And now Romans are mocking Jesus for claiming to be a king. And there's so much mocking and yelling and then fists start throwing. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ or you've seen a movie that plays out the life of Jesus, so many of the sights and sounds are what brings the lump in our throats. It's seeing and hearing how this sinless one, the perfect one, was treated like the worst criminal around. So let me give you three things to consider and to reflect on. From what we learn from Jesus' heart and his actions in those last few hours before he's taken to be crucified and what it means for our lives. And number one is a commitment to obedience. And I know we live in a time where people seem to kind of press against rules and they want to talk more about individualism and inalienable rights and things like that. But when it comes to the Bible and comes to God, there's a commitment to obedience that has to be there. And for Jesus, it was a commitment to obedience no matter what kind of forms of betrayal came in his life. Which I think is a word for some of you in this room who are, are experiencing forms of betrayal in your own life right now, whether it's in relationships with people that are close to you or in, in work relationships, that for Jesus there was a commitment to obedience no matter what kind of betrayal, no matter what kind of circumstances were in his life because Jesus was so committed to living into God's plan of fulfillment in his life. A prayer that I pray over my boys almost every single night is, God, tomorrow as these boys go about their day, will you help them to be obedient and to do what is right even when it's hard? That even if they're the only ones who are trying to decide to do what is right in the moment. Help them to do what is right even when it's hard. Number two is this. Jesus believed in the mission of God. He fully bought into it. So over the last few weeks, I've had a chance to work with some church leaders in multiple places. And one question all of them have asked me is, Josh, how do you deal with criticism? How do you deal with criticism in ministry? And my first answer is, well, I call my mom, and then my mom takes care of it for me. <laughs> and if you know my mom, she would take care of it for me. But I think the best way to deal with criticism, especially in the church, is to believe in the mission and vision. If you believe in what it is that you are a part of, it makes dealing with criticism and negativity so much easier. That it's easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day -day grind. And sometimes what we need is just to be lifted up and to be reminded of the bigger picture. And when we see the bigger picture, we're able to go on in our lives living from a place of great joy. So with Jesus in the garden, I think he fully embraces and believes and buys into the mission and vision of God to bring salvation to all people. Which meant that he knew that even when betrayal and forms of persecution came, he believed in the overall vision of God that he was going to be obedient to it no matter what. And number three is this. The ultimate sign of maturity is selflessness. Which is a muscle that has to grow. 
But the overall, like the ultimate sign of, of maturity in someone's life is selflessness. Now, when I talk about selflessness, I'm not talking about you not believing in yourself. I'm talking about you believing so much in yourself and who you are in God that you live with this great confidence of who you are in God. And when we get to that point in our lives, we know that we don't exist just to bring ourselves fulfillment. We exist for the good of the world. So for Jesus, this wasn't just a time for him to pray, just for Jesus to be right with God. It was for Jesus to surrender to God in a way where he catches hold of the greater vision of God. And as he does that, he knows that his life and calling is to be selfless so that everyone else can find life. So I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders to go around the room just to receive people for prayer today. And as I do, I just want to ask you to reflect on one of these and and which one you need to spend just a little time with reflecting on. Is it a call to obedience, to live a more obedient life? Is it to believe in the mission and vision of God? Because maybe in your life, and you haven't taken time recently to reflect on that, what is the bigger picture and what is your role in it? And maybe it's a call for God to lead us to live more selfless lives tomorrow. So the people in our city, people in your context can find life. If there's someone here who's never surrendered your life in baptism, you've never entered into the waters, not to have dirt removed from your body, but a clear conscience with God, I invite you to come and find one of these leaders today or to find one of us to help you study so that we can help usher you to a place where you make a deeper commitment to live into God. And if there's anything we can do for you, this is a time. You see the prayer leaders around this room who are here to receive you. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song.